Welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us this year as we venture into Beleriand with the great heroes of the Elder Days and do battle with the Dark Lord Morgoth. We hope you enjoy our discussion of the Silmarillion. Uh, okay, so um, I thought what we would do, uh, let me think, should we do introductions first? Yeah, let's do introductions. Just saying we are podcasting, so anything you will say will be recorded. <laughs> FYI. Right. Anything you say can and will be used against you. <laughs> the quarter <laughs> So why don't we uh, go around, uh, say your name, say what you're currently studying or how you're or if you're not studying what you're up to. And then maybe uh, I think we do this every year or so we again. Uh, when when were you when did you first meet Tolkien or something Tolkien wrote? How old you know I've never person? met him. So yeah. Ben, you're always taking everything you say so early. Not always. So <laughs> so um, my name is Rick and I have for the last 10 years been serving as the History Reform Campus Minister, so one of the chaplains here on campus. Uh, I'm also doing a PhD in Religious Studies. My candidacy exam will be sometime before the end of the year. It has to be, <laughs> so there is a deadline. Uh, and uh, I'm yeah one of the founding members of this club, which is now starting its seventh year, I think. This is our seventh year or eighth year. I think it might even be more. It might even be our eighth year. So it's been lost in this time. Yeah, no, we can actually figure it out. Uh, we just, uh, this I, is my first Okay, so this will be the beginning. So anyway, so that's great. Uh, and I first, I remember in grade, I think it was grade seven or grade eight, my very, my best friend in elementary school, Phil Hosmar, started raving about this book he was reading called The Hobbit, and telling me how great it was. But I didn't read it. I think I read it probably in grade nine. Ordered it through the scholastic book order. And uh, so that's the first one I read and loved it, of course. I thought this is the, one of the best things I've ever read. And I never looked back. I went to the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion. That took me two times to get through, but I did manage it. And since then, you know, Tolkien has sort of been a part of my life. So it's been really, really great. Uh, why don't we go clockwise? Uh, greetings. <laughs> I'm Nick. This has like Rick, this is my last year with the club and, and school, graduating, so I have that to look forward to. Um, it's funny because I grew up with the movies first, and for the longest time I didn't know they were books. I always thought that um, J.R.R. Tolkien was the same person as J.K. Rowling. Uh, yeah. Um, so I eventually uh, found out they were books. Uh, it wasn't until like after high school, like when I started. Club that actually got to reading the books and uh, just been one wild ride going through uh, you know, everything Kermit ever wrote and you know looking forward to doing some reeling again because uh, you know it, it is a lot. So I'm Ariel. I'm a third year PhD student in English and I first I don't know when I I think I read The Hobbit like in grade six. And then the, the movies of the Lord of the Rings are coming out when I was in like grade 9, 10, 11. And um, so they're like a huge part of my high school. Uh, 
school thing, but I didn't actually read the books until, no, after the first movie came out, then I was like, I don't have to, so I read all books, and just, or, or tried to anyway. Um, and I, I read a film like 15 years ago, so I'm really excited to actually read it again. Hi, I'm Alex. Um, I actually, this is my first year at uh, U of A because I transferred over from another school over on the East Coast. And uh, I got pushed into open studies, so I got to get my grades back up. But uh, yeah, uh, my first experience with Tolkien would have been I don't, I don't know if I read The Hobbit or if I watched the movies first, but I, one of the biggest parts about like, understanding, or one of the first thing, events with Tolkien was uh, watching The Hobbit animation. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> Memorable. <clears throat> I'm Jordan. I'm in my final semester of classics and an English minor. Uh, I Tolkien is just one of those books that my dad was reading to me well before I can remember exactly when he started. Um, so early elementary school age probably was The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. And, uh, yeah. Also, greatly enjoyed the audiobooks and the movies as a kid as well. So, history with it. Yeah. I'm Sarah. Um, I am majoring in English and minoring in anthropology in my third year. Um, and my first experience with the Rings, my dad read The Hobbit to me when I was in grade five or six, I guess, me and my brother. Um, and then he started reading the fellowship of the year, and then finished it. So, Oh, we have to give us your name before you leave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Dustin. Um, I probably read, well, I didn't read Lord of the Rings, but uh, I was first introduced to it by my best friend in elementary school. He always tried to get me to read it, but I don't really read. But I did watch the movies like three or four times over, so I got that wrong. Cool. Keep up, guys. Okay, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I'm also Alex. And I unfortunately no longer go to the U of A. I graduated a year ago, but I went to Bioware right now, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> I was introduced to Lord of by my dad, showing me the movie as soon as they came out, which would have been when I was in elementary school. And I watched them a lot and memorized Aragorn's speech at the end of Return of the King and wasn't very good at it. But I didn't actually read them until like high school, I think. And then I read this one really the first time when we did a book study on it, probably the Last time we did this one, really, or something for me with it. Yeah, I bet. And it's my favorite book of anything that's been written, so I'm super excited. But also, I won't be here for book study because I normally work on Mondays, but. Listen to the podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm Kelsey. I also no longer go to the U of A, but I'm now a staff member, so I'm on campus all the time. So I'll probably be around for book study for at least an hour every Monday. And I was first introduced to Tolkien, I guess, when I came here and joined the club five years ago. I had a friend who was in this club, and I'd never read or watched Lord of the Rings, and she said, this is amazing, you should come and meet these people. So I came and I joined, and I still have not read or watched all of them. <laughs> but I feel like I'm slowly chipping away. So we'll see if I actually get through this on the this year. Because we all know Baron's your favorite character. Yes, oh, exactly. No, yeah. They're all Come on. Apparently, <laughs> we don't all know. It's been a long time. I'm Chris. I actually do still go to the university. Um, <laughs> I'm an econ major, and um, I was introduced to Lord of the Rings when I was 
16 or 17, my girlfriend at the time, did not shut up about these books and has been named her firstborn child, Aylin, didn't care for the boy or girl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can read these books. And so, Hi, I'm Damien. I'm in sociology, and first time I was introduced to Lord of the Rings was when my dad took me to a fellowship, and it first came out in movie theaters, and I just I was in grade one, and I remember at the time I was um, scared, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. But since then, it's been a huge part of my life. Yeah. Uh, I'm Jesse, and I discovered that I need three more classes to graduate. So thank <laughs> you. Uh, uh, I was first introduced to Lord of the Rings. I tried it when I was in grade three and put it down because it was boring. And now I'm, and then I picked it up again when I joined this club. Uh, I'm Josh. I'm all alone in engineering. Um, I, I don't know. They abandoned me. <laughs> I think they graduated or something. Yeah. Really weird. Weird how that happens. Um, my, my first Tolkien experience was my dad reading The Hobbit to me when I was really young, but at some point I felt that he wasn't going fast enough, so I just picked it up and finished it myself. And then I, I read Lord of the Rings, and then I kind of ignored it for a bunch of years and rediscovered it in my last semester of high school because I discovered that the school library had a bunch of the History of Middle Earth books. And then I just completely fell down the rabbit hole. Um, I'm Ryan. Um, this is my second year. I'm technically taking um, a philosophy major with a French minor, um, but I'm studying to be a Catholic priest. Um, then for Tolkien, I don't remember the first time I was introduced to Tolkien. I think it was like watching the movies when I was four with my cousin. Um, and then I tried to read the books when I was when I was about ten or so, and I think I managed through the, the main trilogy. Um, but then I only really, really fell in love with it when I was in grade eleven, when I read the Silmarillion for the first time in five days, and I loved it so much that that summer I read through the Fellowship in two days, I think, um, and just continued to read absolutely everything and go through the wikis online and all the Tolkien fan bases and fictions and theories about everything in Tolkien. Um, and so now I finally get to be part of a Tolkien club, so that's pretty cool. Uh, I'm Robert. I'm a comp sci guy. Um, I'm one half of our marketing department. So if you see Facebook posts, hopefully I'm, I'm doing them on time. Um, it all started back when I was a wee lad. Uh, just just learning how to read, and I was reading the uh, titles on the spines of books on my dad's shelf. He had one shelf with all these oversized books, so I wondered what this J.R.R. Tolkien guy was and why there was a whole book about him on, on my dad's shelf. It was so huge, right beside a uh, Stephen King. Um, <laughs> and uh, so then a few few years later, the movies were coming out. My dad was always really big on reading the books before you watch the movies, so he made a 10 or 11 year old kid read uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, and it was actually really good. It was, a, it was an enjoyable experience, so I've been hooked ever since. It didn't turn me off the whole thing. <laughs> I was hoping you would take longer. Uh, hi, I'm Ben. I am uh, in hopefully my last year of a computer science degree. 
back after missing the entire last year of book study because I was on an internship. That was fun. Uh, and my first experience with Tolkien was probably the movies because I was about six when the first one came out. And then I inevitably read The Hobbit when it, like, in grade three or something after all the movies had come out. And for some reason, I have a memory, but I don't remember it exactly when, of listening to the audiobook on cassette tape of The Fellowship of the Ring, because I remember the Radagast portion, and I was very confused. <laughs> uh, and then I never actually read the books other than, like, the first three chapters of The Two Towers until I joined this club. And now I've read them all, and it's fun. <coughs> I am Tristan. I am in my third year of a technical <coughs> fashion degree. Um, I was first introduced to Tolkien when I was a wee lad, and my father read the Hobbit out loud to me. I didn't feel that he was going too slowly, so I actually, you know, carried on being read out loud to me, and I was lovely. Um, oh, I'm also the vice president of the Tolkien Club. Yeah. Uh, my name's Kara. I am in my last about the format of this event. 
Obviously, uh, Pete, or obviously uh, Pete, you may have to leave halfway through because you have a class. That's fine. Don't feel like, oh no, I'm going to interrupt something. Just uh, get up and go. Other people will be coming in for the second half, so don't feel that you're uh, you're interrupting things. Uh, as Jordan mentioned, uh, this is being podcast, it's being recorded, but it also means that we try to avoid putting things on the tables that are going to kind of rattle. It's mostly your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from now on, we're going to try to avoid putting things on the table that rattle or make noise or some food kind of stuff because it doesn't interfere. Also, don't kick it. Yeah, yeah, don't kick the table. That's right. Uh, you know, I mean, we're not going to be legalistic about it, but if you think you might be. The other thing is, uh, it's a bigger group, and so in order to try to maintain some order and to make sure that everyone has a chance to speak, we are going to, uh, I am going to ask that you raise your hand if you want to talk. I know it feels like you're one of us. Or maybe don't raise your hand if you want to talk, I don't even know. But, um, but that allows, you know, everyone to speak. It also keeps things from getting too chaotic. Also, because it's a big group and because I'm just facilitating, but I'm also far away, there's a temptation sometimes to start little conversations about really interesting topics that happen, which is great, but that also interferes with the podcast, so I'm going to ask us to, if at all possible, avoid those kinds of conversations. I know it's sounding really formal, but it's actually not. That's just, I just see it. Uh, and then generally what we do is we begin by, we just go around the circle and everyone has a chance to say something that they liked about the current reading for the, for the day or a question they have, something they found interesting. Uh, this is sort of called priming the pump, right? Usually that end, those things end up being kind of what we discuss and it gives everyone a chance to speak and then sometimes, sometimes you know, it's hard to speak in a big group when you get something out initially then that, that kind of eases into it. So I think those are generally our sort of ground rules for our discussion. Um, so yeah, uh, this year we're reading the Silver Alley. Who's, who's reading it for the first time? Anyone? So-and-so, some people so-so, okay. <laughs> okay, that's great. Uh, we love first-timers. Um, if you had come to the Edmonton Expo last year, and if you had... <laughs> Um, to the panel on the Silmarillion that Alex and I did together, you would have heard a really good summary of the Silmarillion, including some issues around why it's difficult to read. Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to rehash that panel right now, even though we could, because it was awesome. Uh, but I just want to make a couple very uh, brief comments, and then Alex, you know, you can always jump in if you want. Because uh, we had a number of reasons why the Silmarillion was tough to read, and one of them was because there's no sort of main character that you follow through the story, right? Unless someone had mentioned which was really good. Unless you say the Silmarils are the main character, uh, which that could work. Uh, and what were some of the other things that we had that made the Silmarillion kind of hard to... Um, I think it was like just that it jumps around a lot. So yeah. There's a lot of like chapters, little some will breeze over and like hundreds of years and then you'll come to another chapter that's like hundreds of years later or like it's just very it's very broken up into each chapter is kind of its own discrete story yeah so sometimes it can be jarring to go from chapter to chapter and like it's a completely different kind of context that you have to um keep in mind but if you just kind of keep in mind that each chapter is a little more standalone then i think it's a little easier yeah good so uh the other thing to to 
I wanted to mention is that Tolkien, in one of his letters, makes a comment about how he doesn't, it's hard for him to remember a time when he wasn't working on this, this mythology or this story, right? And, uh, you know, Tristan mentioned the History of Middle Earth, which is a 12 volume publication by Christopher Tolkien that basically is, is sort of a, yeah, history of the production of the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, right? So Tolkien is basically, Tolkien basically worked on this thing for his entire life. Sorry, Josh. Well, you know, I, yeah, sorry, Josh. That's right. Wow. And uh, so what we have here is sort of, what I like to call it a snapshot, right? It's, it's Christopher Tolkien took this whole period of the Silmarillion, like, like 50, 60 years or more of Tolkien's life, and he sort of pulled out one piece of it, right? So obviously if you read other parts of the history of Middle Earth, or you read other things, you're gonna, there's going to be uh, inconsistencies, right? And sometimes the temptation is to try to smooth all those heads. Right, and try to find out, well, well, actually, this is how it all fits together. You're welcome to do that. Uh, that's not something I'm particularly interested in doing, because I think that Tolkien changed his mind on a lot of things, right? And so, so this is, so it's, it's important not to look at this as kind of, a, this is the definitive summer, right? This is just one sort of snapshot that we're going to read, and it's really exciting, and when you read Unfinished Tales, for example, you'll find little details that are different, or you read History of the yeah, so. Also, if you think the Silmarillion is hard to read, pick up volume one of the History of Middle Earth, read it, and <laughs> yeah. then return to the Silmarillion, and it'll be really easy reading. And you'll be exactly. Ready. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing before we start that I want to point out uh, is somewhere in this. Oh no, is it in here? Yes. It's on page 310 in my book. There's a guide to pronunciation. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't hurt at some point. <laughs> well, 373 numbers. At some point over the next uh, couple weeks, just read through that so that uh, I'm not constantly correcting you, which I will do if you mispronounce my words. Which is my dross, not Maidros. My Sweet, I'll help you correct people. Yes, and Sophia will also help. Right. Seas uh, are hard. It's Eleborn, not Celeborn. Uh, things, little, little, just little things like that. Ys are always S, so it's Melian and Valerian, not Melian and Valerian. Exactly. <laughs> so as you can see, there's going to be plenty of that, but that's... Uh... Okay, so with all that as background, we can uh, begin our sort of book study proper, which is we were reading the Ino Indolay today, which is the very first chapter. So, uh, and again, you don't have to have read it in order to participate in the discussion, so don't feel like, oh, no, I didn't read it, now I can't say anything. Uh, but we are going to go around a circle, and if there's something from this chapter that you like, or you found interesting, or you had a question about, uh, feel free to share that with the group. And again, if you didn't read it, just said I didn't read it, we'll go on to the next person. Uh, okay, so um, I'll start us off. And uh, I'm reading this now for, I don't know how many times I've read this, many, many times. And every time I read it, something else strikes me. Uh, and this time, what struck me was uh, the very first paragraph. I, it struck me how much um, all of this is happening in the mind and the thought of Lutar. Uh, in fact, the word heart doesn't get mentioned until we get to Melville. 
where something is introduced in Melko's heart, I think. And introduces an interesting word too. But anyway, it just strikes me how much how the emphasis is so much on mind and thinking and thought. And uh, I wonder how much of uh, Plato we're getting uh, in that actually still. Uh, let's go the opposite direction this time. I really love the whole chapter. It's a great chapter. But my favorite part is actually in the forward because I just read the beginning of the book to be in the middle um, where Christopher Tolkien is talking about his dad writing so brilliant, and he has a line here, and in battered notebooks sending back to 1917, he still read the earliest versions, often hastily penciled. Um, so somewhere, it actually it's really cool, somewhere in the world, these notebooks still exist, and Tolkien handwriting is still there, and all these different versions of the story can somewhere be there still. Somewhere in the world, while we're also in the world. Yeah, and, and I think they're actually in one of two places. They're in the Bodleian Library, Bodleian, Bodleian Library in Oxford, Bodleian in Oxford, and for some reason, a whole bunch of this stuff ended up at Marquette University in Indiana? Or wherever they, yeah, I don't know how they managed to secure it or whether he donated it, but somehow they they have a big. I know some extensions that is the journal Oh, so maybe there's something to do with that. Some university in Indiana. Yeah, I know it's Marquette, but I'm not sure what Marquette. Anyway, so. <laughs> so, Rose <laughs> Red, right. So, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't be interrupting you. It's curious. Josh. Trade your places. My favorite part was the description of the Valar taking on form in Middle Earth and how they chose their form, male and female, as a reflection of their thought and as a reflection of their general emotion. Uh, I didn't actually read the end of Lay this time because I've read it like three times <laughs> and I forgot about it till like nine last night. That's funny. It's things. But I'm just going to steal uh, from a paper that I wrote for the Tolkien class last year uh, that uh, the Ainulin Lay is interesting because they're kind of like the song of the creation of the world makes very interesting thoughts of how free will interacts with that because like they've kind of sung it out and they sung the history and then they saw it and they had to make it so like they actually had to put free will in order to make the predestined vision happen it was way better than the paper I wrote. <laughs> was it though yes i think uh my favorite part was that Melkor um, has purpose. He's not just the bad guy. Uh, everything he does seems to have something beautiful that comes out of it in a weird sort of way. So it's all kind of part of the, the grand vision. I think it makes him more interesting that it's because of him that you have snow or um, rain or anything like that. Um, so I had a question and a comment. Um, first of all, you guys pronounce it an... Enu Lindale? Enu Lindale. Enu Okay, I've always pronounced it Enu Lindale, so this is really uh, weird for me now. Why is that so? Why do we pronounce it that way? Yeah. Uh, the A-I is the I's. I don't okay. know if that's in the pronunciation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, someone someone better than me will be able to know why, why where we put the emphasis where we put it. I, I assume it's because... Ainu and Lindale are two different stems. 
-hmm. like the Lindelays from the song. And Elvish tends to put the stress on the first syllable anyway. That's it. Thanks, cool. Josh. Hey, you got it right. I'm impressed. We can just fill your place with this. Josh and also Josh. <laughs> so uh, that was your question, or was that your? Question? That was that was my question. And then you also had a, and, and, um, and then my comment was, um, this is probably my favorite bit of writing in all of Tolkien. Mm -hmm. um, it's just amazing. But what strikes me especially is um, the Christian influence in this. Um, Tolkien was a very devout Catholic, um, and especially this, the opening thing with the three songs, and whenever Melkor goes on his own and comes back, Lupitar takes it and makes it even something into, makes it into something even more beautiful. Um, that's basically Christian theology put into right, um, into story form about where does evil come from? It comes from the devil going off on his own before the world began and then it being made into something beautiful. So it's just, it's quite obvious um, that it was very much inspired by Christian theology. Um, mine's fairly simple. I just like the fact that Almo was most deeply instructed in music. And then all the fancy ocean stuff that comes from that. Uh, I didn't actually think I'd be able to come to this soon, so I didn't read it. But one of the things I enjoyed was the whole idea of free will existing, or that it doesn't. But not my decision another time. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to be for this time. Pretty much guarantee it. I'm sorry, I didn't know what chocolate you ate. So yeah, is there any information about that? But next week, would it be on Facebook? Um. We can make a Facebook post. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Do you want someone else to ask a question? <laughs> oh, did your email like write out oh, all the emails? Oh, okay. Do you want to be on the email? Yeah. Um, I saw the other two. How are you not on the email? Let's see. I just want to Anyway, yeah, so so generally an email will go out that will say what we're reading. We'll also announce it at Book study, so next week we're reading about that. Uh, but yeah, so you're right, that does make it harder to uh, to know what to read. So, yeah, sign up for the email list, and then um, just I sent an email like, this morning, you'll be getting like next week's email too. Um, just make sure the emails are sent out every Monday. So, if it's like if you still haven't gotten the email, then look in your spam folder because we send it from MailChimp and sometimes it goes to your spam folder. So it might end up there. But yeah, just so you know that like, yeah, we're reading for next week. Or just post questions on the Facebook group. Yeah, or that. We can answer that too. Right. Who doesn't love a cosmic rap like, I do the question. No, 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 no. I'm the most big guy in my favorite class is the bar. So whenever I read this and they're singing at each other and building a world, it's like, that's just a 20th level bar. <laughs> 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 Alright, well, that's it. Thank you guys.
I'm a big fan of looking at Tolkien's incredibly dense and pretentious writing and simplifying it into something that human people can understand. <laughs> so when Alex read this chapter to me, I was like, wait a second. They're just like singing back and forth in like a karaoke rap battle and creating the world. And she's like, yeah, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> so that's something that strikes me about it is that the whole thing is just these two people
it's going to be at the end of the world where everything is just going to be um, made at the moment of its utterance and everyone will understand everyone else perfectly and that would be awesome. But I was realizing how much that informs us on the, the original singing now is when everyone doesn't have that knowledge. And they're all just figuring this out and it really emphasized me how much this is just a work in progress and it's right these aren't just gods who already know everything these are basically babies <laughs> well they're, they're figuring stuff out so there's a lot of stuff they don't know they don't understand yet and i think this the kind of limited knowledge actually stuck out to me in contrast to what they'll have later at the end of the world so i thought that was a it, it's interesting but it's also kind of weirdly hidden underneath this whole at the end of the world they will all be perfect and wonderful it's like, that means it's not now and that's cool really. the part that uh, like what i found was uh similar on like the christian thing, but uh but more like i found the writing to be very similar to that of the bible in particular like from like the very beginning it's like uh he made uh, first behind her, the holy ones that were the offspring of his thought and they were with him before all else was made felt very like even from right from the beginning they felt very uh, like vitalistic in, in style and in uh, thought to me just kind of surprised um i have the And really stuck out to me. I, I mean, about Island Lake itself is I love the language and I love the capitalization of the common nouns. I love the well, they are common nouns, they're important nouns. And um, I also um, in the in the letter he goes over a few things about how um, he you know like he basically gives like a little like like summary of it before it begins. But then he also says, um, to keep in mind that this is a very non-anthropocentric text. Nothing that Inus is about humans. And that's why we don't know where men come from. We don't know where they go. They're just kind of random and incidental to like the real story, which is about the Silmarils and the elves. But I mean sort of just the elves. The elves are kind of the vehicle for the Silmarils, you know? So like this is like this is not a book that is concerned with people doing things unless it's unless they are directly in um, in line with I guess the, the way that the Silmarils and the unfolding part of um, the unfolding of this history. Yeah, like I really like those chapters. Very poetic, very beautiful writing. Uh, what I what I really liked is like sort of what Robert was saying, the fact that Melkor isn't just the villain, he's not just a straight up dark lord of evil of all evil just to be evil. Like he there is sort of a point to him and and uh, he he has depth, like he has character and it's really just sort of fascinating to see how he can go from being, you know, the utmost Ainur to being the great enemy. It's really interesting to see his journey, and then the Valar in general are just really interesting to me because it's rather brilliant when Tolkien had the Nordic pantheon and, and in other words, sort of Christian influenced mythos. And uh, just like just like the, the idea of them being sort of 
parts of Lubitar's thought that have kind of taken form and sort of influenced events. It's a really pretty interesting, fascinating idea. You know, just like the whole topic of like separation and refractive light comes up. So it's it's really fascinating. All right, great. Thanks, everybody. Uh, so we'll start with is it Ryan? Ryan. Yeah, Ryan. So you had a question about Lewis. So we'll start there, and we'll we'll see uh, where we go from there. There's lots of thought going. I just wanted to know if anybody knows um, like the time frame that Tolkien was working on this and C.S. Lewis was working on the creation myth in The Magician's Nephew, because I'm like, I could see them working on this at the exact same time and influencing each other and then being like, nope, mine's better. See? It'd be interesting. Does anyone know the time frame? Right. See you. Thanks. Um, yeah, uh, Tolkien was first by decades. Oh, Magician was published in 1955. Yeah. He was a pretty quick writer. Yeah, Tolkien, Tolkien was working on this already in the early 1920s. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Lewis borrowed from Tolkien. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Awesome. Or they just both been like talking in reverse. Yeah. See you. Did Tolkien submit? Parts of some of the languages. Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So hi, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's start with Alucatar. That's the first character we meet. What? Uh, yes, Alex. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just gonna I just gonna bring up like he's he's God and like the like, thing the thing I find interesting about Tolkien's creation myth and the Unholy is he was extremely devout Catholic, but he also loved loved the Norse pantheon. And I think Lilubitar was his way of bringing his personal beliefs and mixing it with the mythology he wanted, which was this mythology of multiple gods in a pantheon style. But he was still like, no, 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 though, that's still heathens. Catholic Catholicism is still right. <laughs> so we have to have. Gone above that. Right. So I'm just giving it. I'm just giving it. Gone, guys. Yeah, Just saying, like that is the the whole idea of kind of like having angelic beings that are like mistaken as gods is not unique to Tolkien. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lewis does it in his space trilogy uh, quite heavily as well, and it's you know that that was also a very medieval view of uh, the kind of pagan pantheons is that it was, you know, it's not that the pagans were wrong, it was just that they had mistaken, you know, lesser beings for greater for greater ones, and that was kind of, so that's, it's it's not just Tolkien forcing it, it's also drawing upon, all, you know, centuries of uh, other people doing the same thing. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yes, sir? Um, I found it really interesting, um, the difference between, like, you'd think that the Valar, like, Eros is given the Valar this ability to create something that is, is his very own vision for the world. So you'd think that they would be the people who are closest to him and who are very like him, right? They're his creation is very similar to him. This is endowed with his own ability to create. Um, but... Then when you come to the children of Lubitar, when they read about, you know, oh, and then they saw the children of Lubitar, I mean, they were super surprised because they didn't know these 
guys even were going to exist. Um, you read that they're also like stunned by the fact that it revealed that children of Iluvatar reveal something different about Iluvatar's nature than the Valar knew about, which is super fascinating to me. And it relates back to the idea of like being created in God's image, um, but really it's just, I just find it interesting. Where is it here? Um, yeah. When they beheld them, the more did they love them, being things other than themselves, wherein they saw the mind of Illuminator reflected the moon, and learned yet a little more of his wisdom, which otherwise had been hidden even from the iron. Well, there's a, that's a great line there, too, by the How the reason that they loved was because it was other than themselves, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, so I'm, there's, a, there's a group of us who are going to start reading Augustine's Confessions to me. And so I've been reading about Augustine. He was also a big influence of Tolkien, because Augustine was you know, an influence just on Western, the Western theological tradition. But, but this idea of, of love being sort of rooted in, or, or that you love something because it's other than you, which goes against a lot of, uh, I think a lot of, the violence and the, um, the pain and suffering in the world tends to be because we love ourselves and our people, rather than the, uh, the other is, is the enemy, right? And, and so it's such a great little line, right, that he puts in there about, about loving something because it's not, right? Which I think, uh, you know, in my opinion, we could have a bit more of maybe the world would be a better place, but that's just my opinion. And maybe a custom. <laughs> Yeah, Chris. We talk about all the Christian influence on Daniel Inlay and the Tolkien mythology as a whole. Um, one of the things that I find interesting that's missing is there's no talk of salvation. Don't talk of salvation. Mm -hmm. Don't talk of humans need to be saved. So you sandwich not to defend, but for Tolkien being Catholic, it's a pretty interesting thing to leave out. Which it's because that's a fundamental part of the thing, is the human need for salvation. So it's interesting that he left that there. Because he's trying to write, I can't believe it's not Catholic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I job. I think it goes back to the fact that this story isn't actually about humans, though. Mm -hmm. If it was, then like, like he would see it as like, like yeah, then, as you said, like, there's that human need for salvation. But this isn't about humans, at least about what they do. We don't care about that. They're not important. We're talking about So, like, I, I, I see that sort of as a classical fact. It, it's interesting that it's not in there, like, especially not in here, where, you know, we do get that flash forward to the end of all things. And, you know, like, within every creation story, there is an end, and I think it's really the beginning, and it's about sort of doing the end thing. But, like, and so we get no mention of that, no um, real kind of mission that any of that is going to happen, so we do kind of know that that's not part of the story. That's really interesting. Uh, actually, I think it's in here. Yeah. But we'll see. <laughs> oh, Sarah. Oh, okay, Sarah and Alex. Um, I was just say that I, I'm not sure necessarily that that distinction between it not being about men and not being about humans. I don't think that makes a difference functionally, seeing as the elves have what is essentially a human nature anyways when it comes to like sin and doing wrong things, greed, etc. Um, 
I was thinking that it might have partially to do with the fact that Tolkien's original intention was a mythology for his own world. Um, and so if this was part of a mythology for his own world, he didn't need a, a savior figure, he didn't need the concept of salvation, so he already had that. Um, so that wasn't really the, the intent of, of the story that he was writing. This was supposed to be a different kind of mythology. Um, I would actually agree with Ariel that it, it's because it's about elves, and I think that's because once we read further on into when men are actually introduced, which is not so like chapter 11, so we are watch talking about <laughs> men in the world, there is quite a parallel between um, Tolkien's men and the men of in Christian myth falling. So I, I think I think we do get that salvation myth, but later on, once, once we're actually introduced to men, and especially in the that debate between right, yeah. Later in his life, yeah. And, and yeah, later in Tolkien's life, I think the Christianity stuff becomes much stronger, mm -hmm. right, than it is here. Um, but but I do think I do think actually, um, I mean, I, I I would argue that the entire Silmarillion is about salvation, right? As, and we'll see I as, too, yeah, actually. right mm -hmm. because it's it's. Anyway, well, I mean, the whole thing is the, the, the Valar say to them, you are not going to be able to beat Malcolm on your own. That's yeah. the whole point, right? But it, it, something from outside is going to have to come, and, right? Um, and we'll see that that kind of throughout. Uh, but one thing, so, and, and we, can, we can debate, of course. Um, one thing I do find interesting is, yes, everyone who says this is Christian theology mixed with Norse, but cleaned up Norse songs. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, well, yeah, there's, there's still, still, there's still some of that. What I find interesting about Iluvatar, go back to the original question, is how unlike the god of the Bible, Iluvatar is. Because Iluvatar in this story is completely separate, completely aloof, completely disconnected from the world that Iluvatar makes. Whereas. One could argue you felt men Right, you could. Right, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and of course, as we'll see, and, and we, when we talk about the Hobbit Lord of Rings, we do see that Luvatar is kind of involved, right? But um, you don't have, like in the Hebrew Bible, God is constantly involved. Like, you don't have an Abraham in the story where God shows up for a meal, right? And says, hey, let's have a meal. And oh, by the way, I'm going to go do the, you know, like, like, you don't have those sort of epiphanies where this Iluvatar character actually sort of inserts himself into the story directly with the characters. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I was just, you know, even in the I Know Delay, it's very much Iluvatar is a, he's a delegator. Right. Right. Like, it's not like, you know, the one thing that he creates of, you know, into, he creates in the world that no one sang is the children, and that's the only thing we're ever told. So it's just kind of interesting that I don't, in, the, in this conception, I don't think he, it's, it's a necessity that he does have to insert himself, because I always, I, except for the one, you know, in at the very end when he makes the world go round, literally. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, he, he doesn't, and it's almost, but you know, you still get like the Ballard doing stuff. I mean, I don't know if you want to do a Bernie Bush and Olmo with uh, two, is it two or yeah. yeah, you know, you could almost 
you could argue somewhere in there once you get to that, but that's, you know, it's very much a, I'm going to sit back and relax and enjoy the show that you guys put on for me, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay, we'll just go down the road here. So Ryan and then Joseph and then Jesse. Okay. Um, it's I think it's definitely true that Alucatar seemed very separate from the rest of the story, except for these few critical moments. I'm not sure how many spoilers we can give. Um, That's okay. We we sort of agreed together that spoilers are spoilers are good. Okay, like making the world go round or sending men. It's like at these few critical points. He's still very much involved and sends a game changer. Um, so it's like when I'm reading it, it feels like, yes, we're dealing with the Silmarils, we're dealing with elves and Tuor and um, selfish men and Melkor, but it still feels like a Lubatar's story. Mm. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's, he's separate, but like the thought is never gone. Even like among the elves, like the thought is still, he's still back there somewhere. Yeah, just kind of, I think what really separates this from a lot of like Christian mythology or Christian genesis narratives is there's no history of, rep- of like a representative throughout like the entirety of Middle-earth, right? Like, that's the thing that really criti- is critical for like the Abrahamic religions, where there's some sort of like representative, almost at all times, that is kind of like this unified expression of like the will of the divine. And here it's like Iluvatar is fitting much more in the idea of who God is in like a medieval Christianity. Right. Where it's like he's this sort of, like you said, definitely like this player, but it's a lot more subtle than literally having some sort of like representative tradition kind of guide society through the like the processes that it kind of goes, right? Except for maybe the Astari. Would they kind of be the Abraham, the Muhammad, the Christ figure? There's something of the power, it's not necessarily the right. Yeah. So, but yeah. Yeah, Jesse. Uh, no, I, I've only kind of does it really well on that. Okay. So, I'll come out of all there. <laughs> <laughs> the Christian <laughs> culture. Um, but for, like, the wizards, just have a good point for something. But I would say it's kind of interesting that despite all the Christian you don't hear about, oh, we're going to meet at the church, or we're going to go to the shrine. There is one, and it's not good. <laughs> like, I don't remember any point in Lord of the Rings where like, you hear the name Ulmo or right. whatever mentioned, and these are supposed to be the gods or greater angels of these yeah. worlds. It's kind of weird that it's missing. Yeah, Barb is the only one that is mentioned. Mm-hmm. But you're right, and for Tolkien, of course, that's because for him, this is all very pre, 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 yeah. all that stuff, right? <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, he del- and the, he talks about this in the letters too, how he sort of deliberately, I mean, that was deliberate, right? That, that this is before all of that stuff. Yeah, maybe. Well, and it's interesting too, because, like, you know, Lord of the Rings, like, there really is only sort of one kind of religious scene, and that's when, you know, when uh, Frodo's a farmer, and right. in the village, you know, they look to the western point of view, yeah. and that's really the only thing they have. But then, like, in, in here, this is in other words, when we talk about sort of religion, the only kind of overt examples we see are, like, the darker examples, right? When, when Sauron, Corrupts right. the new Orient. There's like you no know, human sacrifice, blood rituals, and yeah. sort of this, this kind of dark, um, you know, kind of maybe you know, again pre-Christian kind of thing. So it's a little bit like his conception of magic, where it's like only sort of the dark, darker powers are referred to sort of more brutish, overt kind of ways. 
whereas when they're on sort of the side of the L's and the Valor, it's things are sort of far more subtle. They're not, you know, there isn't sort of a direct kind of thing going on. Yeah. In the same kind of tone, I was uh, like, I'm noticing that while they're more, more subtle, it's more like what they do on a day-to-day basis is a style of worship. Like the singing themselves was like worshiping Lubatar and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but from the two thirds of the Lord of the Rings that I read, like, there's no active religion, but there's only, like, one way to be. There's the bad guys, Melkor and Sauron, and then there's the good guys. There's no, like, multiple religions. Right. It's not like we have these people who believe in Lupitar and these people who believe in other things. Like, everyone is just the good guys, and if you don't do this, then you're one of the bad guys. Like this book of Genesis, which we're literally reading, is written as if this is 100% the entire group. Like, there's no one who doesn't believe in the guitar. And if you are against the guitar, then you're just a bad guy. Like, it's not really religion, it's just this black and white, true and not true thing. What does it look like? Sophia? Okay, I have two points. One, I don't think it's even true and not true because even if you're against a Lumitar, you still believe a Lumitar exists. Yeah. Against yeah. Um, Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, the like, um, the best example of like established religious practices comes from like the more like sedentary established societies of like high men and elves um because like you get mostly feasts mostly what it is is feasts because like there's the description of Numenor and also Aldarian and Arendis and Unfinished Tales where you see that the Numenorians have like ritual feasts in honor of Eru like several times throughout the year so you have that sort of idea and that seems to be kind of their religious event or religious worship is that you have these religious feasts Right. And the king can go up to the top of the mountain. Oh, yeah. Right? So that's also a kind of ritual of some kind. Of, it's unclear what exactly you expect to happen when he does that. But, yeah. Uh, okay, Sarah? Um, I also think, I think that part of that stems from the idea that um, their connection to what you would consider like your overarching mythology or religious figures um, is far more tangible. Right? Like, our established religion comes from something that you, that there's no, like, our point in history in which people had actual contact with angels and gods is really far removed from Western religion today. We don't have a lot of, yeah, Abraham coming down, right? Abraham having suffered with the Lord, right? Um, whereas, especially in the Silmarillion, considering how long elves live, and even in Lord of the Rings, which is a Galadriel, um, People who have met the Valar, right? Meeting the Valar and living in Valar is living memory. Um, so the idea that other sects would pop up, is, it's far more difficult to have other sects pop up when you've got, like, you know, people who are like, yeah, okay, but I met the Valar. <laughs> like, I lived there. This is a thing that happened within my lifetime. Um, so you don't have, okay, and you don't have a lot of that opposition because it's extremely hard to oppose people who have literally just walked back here from Valinor. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's more it's not even a matter of people having different conceptions of what truth might be. It's that the truth is uh, the truth of the um, of how the world came to be is so tangible 
So, uh, okay, I do, I do want to move on at some point. <laughs> I, I think maybe, I know there's a lot of comments still. I'm going to let Jesse go, because Jesse did have something before in the last one, but they're not going to really move on. We'll probably come back to it anyway at some point. But. Yeah, no, one of the reasons I think Yale's done that really is that what Sarah was saying, people have met the Valar and they know, well, you know, you've got this other idea, but I've just talked to the Valar, so fine, but this <laughs> Yeah, Manly and I are bros. The shocking thing is like nothing sprung up from the fields that never went to Valor uh, or from the men by the time the Lord of the Rings is happening or the offense that they don't have anything, which is kind of weird that they don't have Yeah, especially since they're so insular at that point. Yeah, and couldn't imagine someone who had doubt about religion. There was either the person who believed or the person who was yeah. evil. That's all we could think of. Like, well, but all the contemporary knowledge of the Valar would have filtered down from the elves or you know, thousands and thousands of years back, which, and the fact that nothing really sprung up is kind of, yeah. I think he was avoiding, I think he was avoiding, like for him, for him, that's because all, yeah, I mean, these are all good questions. Uh, organized religion for Tolkien at this point is just not even on the horizon. It's all pre any of that, right? Now, you could write, you could say from an anthropological perspective, well, that's unrealistic because we're going to organize themselves. You know what I mean? But Tolkien wasn't an anthropologist, and that wasn't, I don't think, his interest in, you know, so, so yeah, on the one hand, yeah, Kelsey's right. I mean, you would expect that there, that would happen because that's what happens, right? But from the narrative perspective, I think Tolkien is simply saying in his mind that's just pre any of that stuff. I mean, how many atheists do you find in Homer? That's great, right? Yeah, right. Anyway, but they were there for sure. But yeah, you don't find humanity. Okay. Yeah. I think humanity kind of lacks the basic curiosity in Tolkien's work that exists. Yeah. Which would explain for why they don't invent anything new. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just not his, he's just not interested. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, I want to talk about, we do have to talk about freedom, uh, so we may as well talk about the music. Uh, Are we talking about freedom? Yes. I just want to, so yeah, yeah, so we're going to talk about the idea of freedom, and, the, and what exactly is, is the song, like what is the song, what, how does it unfold? Right, there seem to be three movements. What's what's their relationship with one another, and all these kinds of questions. So it's kind of wide open. But anyone who wants to launch into something about that can start us off, Alex. So I I am skeptical about the idea of freedom. Yeah. Um. So particularly in the second, okay, in my edition, it's like the fourth page, fourth, third, second. Um, where it talks about. Illuvatar listening to the music of the island. Yeah. And it said, But now Illuvatar sat in Harkins, and for a great while it seemed good to him, for in the music there were no flaws. So that's when everyone's singing his song. But as the theme progressed, it came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Illuvatar. How dare him? For he sought therein to increase the power of Lord the first time himself. And that's when, of course, the discord of Melkor comes in, and then in the third act, uh, Illuvatar wraps it into his own theme again. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just 
uh, from the very beginning, it seems that Illuvatar is like, all right, so everyone has their parts in my chorus, and you're all singing what I told you to sing, and that's good, awesome, thanks for doing exactly what I told you. And then Melkor decides he doesn't want to do exactly what Illuvatar says, and that's when bad things happen, and they're only resolved when Illuvatar brings it back into the theme. So, although it is clear, it is clear to me that free will exists because Melkor was able to interview his own theme, but also seems quite frowned upon, at least in this instance, um, that he would think to sow discord. Melkor is wrong for trying to sow discord, even though it does end up going good in the end. Okay. That's a great start. <laughs> um, Corinne. Um, I just push back a little bit on the whole everyone is doing exactly what they're supposed to, because I don't think each Imer's individual part is so pre-prescribed. Like they have their they have their own understanding uh, from the mind of Lubitar. Like they have their own sort of personality, their own understanding of their song. But I wouldn't say it's like he it's you know, it's not the analogy of kind of having sheet music or saying here's your key and here's a general shape and roll with it, and they have their own understanding because it takes them a long time to get to this point of a great harmony because they're listening to each other and they're like, oh, so this is what your your theme is supposed to be about. I don't even know anything about that. And they're it's it's I think it's far more collaborative than a pre-prescribed notion of how the world's going to be. I think it, it definitely is because there's the, the passage at the beginning where, he, like, Oluvatar gives them the theme and then says, "You shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme, each with his own thoughts and devices, if you will. But I will sit and hearken." Right. So it's more like he gives a general theme, and then Melkor's music is aggressive. Like it starts to talk later on about how it's like harping and impinging on the other palette and they don't know what to do. Um, but, if, but anyways, I definitely don't think that it's totally. And then my first point was to point out that, like, ontologically there is freedom. You mentioned that at the end, but I was going to say that too before you did, because it definitely is. It's just uh, what kind of results from it is more of the question. So the, yeah, the, the if you will line is really important, right? Because right from the on the very first page, right from the beginning of the time, is giving them the option of participating or not. Right? So that's the first. That's the first sentence of okay, they can choose, and I, I'm not sure that. Uh, all of the Einar are actually participating in the music. I think it's actually mentioned somewhere that there are some Einar that never came in the tools. Right. Yeah. So there is so there is that there is that bit, right? Um, okay, uh, Sarah. Um I'd also argue that like I think um, to say that when Melkor um, when when Melkor decides to take his own turn, like it's it's frowned upon is a rather sensitive view of how free will should work in general. Right, like um, the doctrine of free will in general doesn't hinge on the fact that you're only the only time you make a choice is to make a choice to go against the Um It hinges on the fact that you have the choice to consistently follow a certain path or not to. Right. So, yeah, I, I think what Chris was saying about there being um, a general shape but not a particular um, sheet music to follow is a good idea. A good way of explaining it. Um, I think there are lots of things that Melkor could have done that would be innovative, right? Like just like there are lots of paths that someone can choose that are all things that we would consider to be good choices, um, but 
the problem with Melkor's theme wasn't that it was different, it was that he was doing it in order to increase the power and glory of his own part, right? Um, and so a lot of Tolkien's uh, conception of evil rests on the idea of, of seeking power and, and being greedy um, as kind of being a root of evil in Tolkien and also Christian theology. <laughs> um, so it's really, it's really that seeking to do your own thing in order to gratify yourself that's the problem. Um, so there are lots of good options that leave you options to choose the way you can go. It's choosing self-glorification that's the issue. Yeah. And the other thing to consider, and, and this is where it gets, it gets complicated, is remember that this is the Valar attempting to explain or to tell this story to the elves of the of the cosmos, right? And I like how can I I'm not sure that we are supposed to take this I believe the light literally. As if this is how it happened. Right? Uh, I think this is this there's no, no area, so how can there be sound? Well yeah, I mean this, this is this is an attempt to explain something that is ultimately inexplicable because this is happening beyond space and time, right? So it's almost as if you could say, it's not like, oh, oh, Iluvatar is a tyrant because Melkor wants to do his own thing and sing his own song, and Iluvatar's not letting him do that, so Iluvatar's a jerk, right? It's it's more like like the theme is like existence. <laughs> you know what I mean? So when someone, to go against existence, it's not just to go, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing for fun. You know what I mean? I don't like, think that is true, though. Melkor is definitely for existence. He wanted to oh, yeah. avoid and create more. That's right. what yeah. so, to create. I'm using existence again as a metaphor to try to explain that. I think Illumitar's theme is supposed to be read as, like, being good. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not... So you could, you could say something like... So there's a theologian named Stanley Howard Ross who has this book called The Brain of the Universe, right? And he talks about how the universe has a kind of energy or rhythm or to use the language that he uses there's a grain right and and when you go with the grain of the universe right things tend to go a little more easier right or you go against the grain of the universe right and, and of course this is just another metaphor so it's kind of we're going to run into a lot of problems but you know it's sort of like you can you can make decisions that are not good decisions that actually lead to your own undoing or your own, right? And and that's kind of, I think, what Melkor's up to. So it's not like, oh, he's not, he doesn't need freedom to do. It's more like, it's a, it's a kind of just self-destructive that leads to a greater destruction. That seems to be the issue, right? Uh, I guess, you know what I mean? If that makes any sense, I don't know. No, I, I, I uh, Joseph. Yeah, kind of getting back to the idea of the level of abstraction, abstraction that Valor would have to accomplish to be able to describe the Ainulin delay to the elves would be completely unintelligible to like a person reading or hearing the story. It'd be like what the actual is happening. <laughs> but yeah, like it's less music and probably more like an ideological sphere that you exist in compared to like it's not something actually they do, but like who they are in a way. And Malcor is like, oh, I'm going to be different. And in a way that's destructive, like to the rest of this ideological sphere. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, Kazuki. But does that not, again, bring us all the way back to Christianity, where you are free to do what you want, but also here's a list of sins that you're not allowed to do, and I swear it's for your own good, but just like, don't do it, it's self-destructive. Does that not just bring us back to our original argument where we're reading the Bible right now? Right, so... <laughs> 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 yeah, so so I think I think that um, okay. So so the, the Christianity, of course, is uh, very inconsistent when it talks about you know which sins are destructive, which ones are not, and you know. Um, but I think that this is this is kind of going. If this is deeper than sin as actions or things you do. Right or don't do, because because there is a, there is sometimes a temptation to reduce sin to just stuff you do or you don't do, right? But in in Tolkien's tradition, in the Augustinian tradition, of course, sin goes much deeper, right? Sin is, sin suggests that there's actually a, a kind of deeper brokenness within the world itself that 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 doesn't necessarily equate with actions, right? That it's, it goes deeper than that, and that's what I think we're talking about, not specific. So when when Melkor is Doing his own thing again, because the language is doing his own thing. Right? Oh, it's, he's he's doing something. He's engaged in some kind of action that's wrong. But I don't think we need to take it literally, right? This is an attempt to explain no, I mean, something. The sin deeper, is a metaphor. Right? So I'm not saying it's right. happening, but it's still like God told you that this is the way to live, and you're not doing exactly that. So stop. <laughs> well, so I think that it's yeah. I do think that that there is a way to be in the world that leads to human flourishing, right? And I don't think Christianity has the monopoly on what that way is, <laughs> even though I'm a Christian Catholic, right? You know what I mean? Like, I think, you know, so even though Christianity sometimes makes that claim, right? So, so I would argue very broadly that there is a way to be in the world that leads to flourishing, and there are ways to be in the world that don't lead to flourishing. And I would suggest... Don't do those things that don't be flourish, right? Whatever that is, I'm not going to come up with a list, right? I mean, sometimes wisdom requires discernment and knowing what that is and when, I guess, if that makes sense. I don't know. Maybe I've jumped on this side. Let's do... Okay, so... Sorry. Okay, I wasn't. I might have been hidden behind Sarah. Oh, Wait, okay, Sarah can confirm, not forever. So we've been talking, one thing that's really interesting is we've been talking about the um, Ainur as though they have like a human level of free will slash desire for free will, which I think isn't actually true. I think that, um, I mean, there's, like it's actually canonically stated that the, like, like men, and elves, but especially men, continue to baffle the Ainur or the Valar because they act like they do things that are really unexpected and they seem to have all of this agency, um, and that's like very surprising for them. So, one thing that so, like, whereas the the Ainur, um, it's like the difference between. Um, having descendants via cloning and having descendants via sexual reproduction, there is more variation in the second method. So for the Ainur, it's pretty much like Iluvatar took different aspects of his mind and put it into all of these beings. 
and they did grow a little bit beyond that, but there's only so much that they can grow beyond that because of how much they are by nature. Um, and so the reason I bring this up is because, like, from a world-building perspective on this discussion, um, it makes sense that the Ainur don't actually have free will in the same way that the children of the Lucrator have free will because they are, like, they're descendants in a different sense, and so they function differently. Um, and you also get that idea with Melkor, where Iluvatar put the most of himself in Melkor. So in a way, Melkor is the most real. Um, Melkor is the most like real, and he's able to grow the most into his own being out of all of them, because Iluvatar put a lot of him in it. But at the same time, if you're gonna like put a lot of yourself into something else, you do run the risk that it's just gonna hate you. See Frankenstein's monster. So anyway, <laughs> um, actually, that's a really bad metaphor. Don't dig deeply into that. You read Frankenstein. <laughs> okay. Um, I have no idea anymore what order we're in, so I guess we'll go Sarah. Sarah, I think Sarah. Um, so first of all, I'd like to address what Kelsey said earlier because I don't think that anyone's actually making the argument here that we aren't reading something that's really, that you can definitely equate with Christian theology. It's more a question of whether it's an accurate representation of how Christian theology portrays free will, and also whether or not free will actually exists in that context. But the argument that it's not based on Tolkien's interpretation of Christian theology and free will is, I don't think anyone really had any point, there's no point in making that argument. <laughs> Uh, and also what you were saying um, about them not having the same amount of free will because they're, yes, yeah, so close to Illuvatar. Um, like, a better illustration for what happened than, like, men creating something is, like, if you were sitting there and creative people um, who were going to build something, and the architect was like, this is the building um, it's pretty great, and here's your role in how to make this building. And everyone's like, that's a super awesome thing. Like, we all agree, this is really a great idea. Um, and then somewhere in the middle of this building process, one of you guys is like, I don't think that I like my part. <laughs> I think I'm going to start changing it right now. Sounds fun. Sounds fun, everyone. I think I'm going to like, turn out very well. Put my name on the aware of what was going to come out of it, or they weren't aware that they had an important part to play in something that they knew would be awesome. It's just that somewhere in the middle of that, someone decided that their part was more important than everyone else's part, and they didn't like what they were making anymore. Yeah, I think it would be like if the lighting guy was like, actually, instead of just moving lights, I also want to do all the floors. Except, like, I want to make the plumbing so that it just sprays all of you guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think maybe Chris. Okay, so as much as I love talking theology, I'm going to back away from Christianity for a moment because people might be about to say. I'm going to look at it as a book because it's a book in the fantasy genre. I hate the Satan trope. 
Because Lubitar and Melkor's dispute here is Melkor wants to be like a Lubitar. There is, if you look at it at the bare bones, what they're doing is not different. Lubitar wants to create this magical, wonderful world with his music. Melkor wants to create maybe a slightly different world with some of his ideas in it. The only difference is one is labeled as a bad guy and one is labeled as God. So, and yes, you could say, oh, Melkor's music is discordant. Well, maybe it's just heavy metal versus, you know, whatever classical Lubitar is singing. So this is a trope that is huge in fantasy because, well, we live in a very Christian, Abrahamic religious culture. You're going to get that dichotomy of there's good and there's evil. I think in the fantasy would be more interesting if there was much more subversion of that trope. Okay. Um, Ryan? Yeah, I think it's me next. Um, sorry, what's your name again? Kelsey. Kelsey, okay. I love what you had said originally to just get this whole um, argument going about whether or not Melkor is the good guy or not, or it's like this stereotype of this sin, and it's just because Illuminar is so great. And it's like, I love it, because we seem to have gone to like a Tolkien version of the Euthyphro Dilemma. Um, what? Sorry? The Euthyphro Dilemma. Oh. If, if you're in philosophy and you've read Plato. Um, where it's like, is the music good? Sorry, um, I should say, is um, wrong wrong? Is what Melkor was doing wrong universally, just because that's the way it is? Or is it wrong because that's the way Iluvatar has arbitrarily said so? Is it like, is this something, is it something above Iluvatar? This idea of good and evil and discord and in Concord, or is it something that Iluvatar's just made up? Um, and it's like, I, I mean, I love Euthyphro for, for this thing. Um, and like the Christian answer to that is neither. It's that um, God just contains what it means to be good within himself, and it's just like going against his very nature. But Tolkien doesn't make mention of Iluvatar being good. He doesn't make mention of Iluvatar being perfect. He just says, Aluvatar is, and Aluvatar wills, let's see, I got the quote here, um, of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now, that ye make in harmony together a great music. He doesn't say Aluvatar being perfect says this. It's just Aluvatar happens to have said that. So it seems to be more like the um, Islamic or the uh, version of the Euthyphro thing where God has said, this is the way it is in, the, in Concord. It's interesting how little the word good actually shows up in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I almost want to sit and think about it a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, I would just, like, slightly take issue with the fact that you, like, Chris, what you were saying about how you have these two different beings that then, I mean, if you even want to put them on the same level as far as being goes, but, um, and then one is, they want to do the same thing, and one's labeled good labeled bad because it it's like it's it's almost too dualistic it's not like there's these two pre like romantic key and like there's these two pre-existing principles or beings of good and evil that are just battling in a variance and they're just one's labeled good the other's bad i think there's also the element of there's jealousy on Melkor's part because he is below um Illuvatar, not just on some kind of like pecking order of greatness, but the fact that like he's a created being, and I think he probably resents that a little bit with see, going into the world and seeking the imperishable fire to be able to like create 
um, from nothing. If we want to like, continue the Christian parallel there too, um, it's not just a matter of there's two things on the same level that want to do the same thing. Uh, one gets beamed for the other in the sense of it, I think. But, yeah. Alex? Yeah, I think that it's true, but of, like the in this myth that it's basically like a not God onto some God. Um, but the so I think it's all like there's always obviously the question of like what is good and evil? Is good and evil like subjective or objective, like all that stuff. But I think definitely in Tolkien we are supposed to read it as whatever Tolkien thinks of as evil is what Melkor represents. <laughs> and whatever Tolkien thinks of as good is what Luke represents. And whether that's an accurate reflection of like the real world, is there an objective good and evil? That's like a whole different thing. Sure. But like it's def- I, I feel like you were definitely supposed to read it as Melkor in his discordant theme, whatever that is, like chaos, jealousy, any anything that Tolkien might think is what describes evil, which is definitely a topic we'll get into, is is one level has. Um, and so what I think is interesting in that case then is of course the question of, you know, Melkor is an Einar, Melkor is presumably made from Ulubatar, Melkor is has a great part of the intelligence of Ulubatar, therefore is Melkor is evil, is Melkor's evilness um, does it come? Does it by necessary necessarily come from a Lutar because he's created by a Lutar because he's a part of a Lutar, or is it something else? Is it like the void? Um, and I think it's very interesting because, as you know, even Melkor's evilness is it, like evilness is worked into this theme for good. I'm just gonna use good and evil because I'm pretty sure that's how Tolkien has written most of the Silmarillion as a definite good and evil. Um, so in that case, does that mean that? Evil is, is, is a part of a Lumitar, that evil is not from a Lumitar, but he thought of it, or like, you know, what, where, where does that come from? Where does Melkor's evilness come from? Well, Alex, that is the question that religion has been asking for millennium, and well, just we stop know. thinking about the evil. So, Sophia. Chris, in relation to your question, I would like to conduct a close reading of the progression of Melkor's issues. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's start it in childhood. So we begin with um, It came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Iluvatar. At this point, we're like, okay, he's just making things up that he wants. He went into, he went looking for the flame of perishable, he wanted to make his own things. Um, he had begun to conceive thoughts of his own, unlike those of his brethren. He starts weaving those thoughts into the music, and then, wait a minute, it clashes. Oh shit, problem. Um, so at first, like, there's not, so then, um, people start following his music rather than their own. The discord of Melkor spread wider. At this point, Melkor is still a little bit innocent um, because he's just trying to make his own things and it's not working and all of a sudden it's corrupting everything. Um, and so Iluvatar is sitting there and listening. And so the first the first reaction Iluvatar has is that he smiles. Because at first he's just like, okay, yes, you're trying to make your own things. I don't actually have a problem with that at this point. Um, and then he like starts up a new theme, right? Um, and the new theme, like, this is where you can get into a lot of different interpretations because, like, he starts a new theme and it's different than the other ones. 
So there's the question of what is going on here. Like, is he adapting to Melkor? Is he trying to fight Melkor? It's unclear. What we do know is that he starts this new music, and then Melkor actually tries to fight it. So he's gone from just trying to make his own things and that clashing to actively trying to fight the music. Um, and then, but I think the biggest issue at this point is not that Melkor is trying to create new things. It's the fact. Um, it's like the first major issue is many of the Ainur were dismayed and saying no longer, and Melkor had the mastery. Then again, Iluvatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern. So if you're following that like directly, you can like one way to read it is that he's pissed off that Melkor is silencing other Ainur. Like there's such a disaster that they don't even know what to do anymore, which makes sense because if someone is disrupting your group dynamics to that point, you kick them out. Um, so, yeah, um, anyway, then Melkor is like, no, I'm going to keep playing my music. And I think that's where your anti-free will thing is, though. That's, mm. that's, Melkor was like, man, I don't want to be this lousy, created thing that was expected to do this one thing. I'm going to go to, do my own thing, and then, you know, you have to do Son, that's an awfully nice, hideous picture that will hang on the fridge for a day. But actually, listen to my song. Listen to my thing. It's better. Your thing is wrong. Don't do it again. I'm glad you're thinking for yourself and all, but don't. And he does it again. So not allowed to do that. No. Yeah. But like the what fundamental problem here is that it's so abstract that we don't know whether or not the harm principle applies. It's, like, I, I don't want to get into it. Talk about it. like I know we are, <laughs> but I'm saying as a trend in the genre, it's overplayed, it's overdone. It's like this is the any five year old knows where this story is going to go. Just the good guy, the bad guy, the good guys are going to win. It's such a tale as old as time kind of thing that you know is you know I. It was, of course, this is how the genre was going to get started, but, you know, it's decent enough thing to criticize in the work. It's a beautiful work, but it's very derivative of a lot of what has come before. Um, Robert. Um, I just wanted to bring up that it's interesting that Iluvatar is never described as uh, omniscient or omnipotent. <laughs> um, it's implied that there's places in the void that he's just never been to, he doesn't know anything about but that Melkor has. So in some ways, Melkor has gone beyond what even Iluvatar has. And um, in that vein, if anybody doesn't want to think about this as religion, you can think about it as Iluvatar being like an alien, and he's got all these little clones he made of himself, and he implanted memories into them, and they kind of go out and do things for him. And uh, he's like seeding a planet, and he's terraforming it. Uh, and I think <laughs> And now we have a sci-fi fanfic version of the like the entirety of the world. Present that along the rap Sarah, I think, and then Joseph. Yeah. Um. I mean, I can see where you're coming from in terms of like there are other ways to to do even like there are other ways to do the battle of good and evil, right? If you go back to Magician's Nephew, which is just a really accessible um, example. Um. The magician's nephew doesn't have a creature that falls that opposes Aslan, right? You're, the, the character opposing Aslan, the magician's nephew, is Jadis, who's coming to the world, and it's all very confusing. 
but she doesn't have a lot of influence on creatures of Narnia. I mean, she comes in, and Aslan's like, why don't you bring her in? She screwed everything up, like, right away. Did you have to do that? Um, but she's not constantly interacting with Narnians. She's not seducing them to the dark side. So if, if Narnians then are doing the wrong thing, it's generally kind of their own invention. Um, and like, if they're screwing up, that's, that's of them. It's not of Jadis as, as an opposition. So what you're, you're arguing against is the fact that like, there's always this opposing figure then, right? This, this character that of alter evil, that needs no one else to do evil, and is really only evil because they oppose the good guy. Um, and so you're looking for something that's just a different kind of story, right? Yeah. yeah. Which makes sense, like there are other ways of doing things. And even the, the good and evil is very fundamental in Lockfast working. Some of it I like, some of it I don't. Um, but it's morality is gray in reality, and I yeah. just have a desire that fantasies had a way to reflect that grayness to our own. Because fantasy should, to an extent, reflect our own world. It isn't trying to comment, usually. Sometimes it is pure just escapism, but usually it's trying to say something. I think Tolkien's a lot of the time is trying to say something. So I wish there was more of a discussion of maybe what is good, what is evil, rather than such a firm beat, like standing your heels in saying, this is good, this is evil, the line I'm drawn, what side are you on? That is so common in fantasy and it's so common in all theology that it's just kind of like, it's not interesting. It's not like a good way to discuss ethics or morals or anything. So that's one of my favorite flaws of Lord of the Rings and other works in the genre. It's, a, it's not an uncommon critique, but I, I don't think it's as black and white as you're saying, actually, when we get into the character. Like, Fanar, right? I mean, Fanar is a very complex character. Yeah, well, me and Alex may say that you love Fanar. Yeah, I was going to say Fanar, though. Turin is a very complex, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not black and white, we're told. Now, the Ainulindale is black and white, right? But but I don't think when you get a, you know, Ormir, you know what I mean? Like, like, Denethor, right? I mean, the, the, there's so much complexity in terms of, good, of what's good and what's evil, right? I, I second that. Uh, Joseph? Yeah, like you're saying, like different schemes of morality in a sense, right? I think what's really interesting is to take this, not say, like, oh, what's good and evil, and kind of better understand Melko's, Melkor's reasoning of, like, why he's doing such things uh, as much as we can attribute like what would seem to be like a human psyche to these creatures that are of thought and totally abstract in a way. It's interesting that Melkor's yeah, Melkor's entire uh, where this starts from is his the sense of alienation he pursues at the beginning, right? It's less I think good and evil. Like if you're considering this in like a non like binary good evil thing, it's more that like Melkor has alienated himself from this image. Right, and this has caused more and more troubles for this in group. I think if Melkor were to completely leave, like the music of the Ainur, and never come back, you wouldn't see the same problem. It's the fact that he's alienated himself and then starts to alienate others, right? It, in like a non like good evil way. Yeah, that's actually great. Yeah. Um, I'd like to push back a little against like it, it, sort of like what we're saying is that I don't think it is black and white because when we start to look at the third theme. That Illuminatar has. It's described as 
where it would be a second. Um, so the music that Alubatar has that is in Clash of Melkor is deep, wide, and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow. So I don't think it's quite accurate, at least once the third theme comes up to start talking about it as black and white, good and evil, because it's something which is inherent, is supposed to be inherently good. It has an immeasurable amount of sorrow that's blended with it. And that sorrow is what makes the music more beautiful in terms of how the world unfolds. So I feel like if it was something that is supposed to be black and white, good and evil, you wouldn't have that depth and that measure of sincerity and intensity within that music that you would build through. Even if it is supposed to be everything turns out well in the end, I don't think it would have that, that level of emotive response in it. And then also at the same time, it's clashing with Belfort, who's the essential obnoxious drama player. Who's <laughs> <laughs> actually there in class. Um, well, I guess one, one idea of Soul is Nina, who is in class too. Um, so Soul, is, in and of itself, is built in with the ballad themselves. And another thing why it seems very good and evil could be is we're supposed to read it through the perspective of the ballads, who would have a very black and white view of Melkor, considering all the destruction he's caused. And so I think that probably adds to how they would view it in that they worship and kind of adore the power, uh, and while Horus caused them infinite pain and suffering. So I think that would add to it. And, and, and even though the Ainulindale and maybe even in some sense the Silmarillion within the story is not about humans. The Silmarillion as a book is about humans, because all books are about humans. Right? They're about us, right, in our world. And you know, and Tolkien, you know, I mean, he went through two wars, only one at this point, the first world war, right? Uh, you can't help but ask questions about good and evil when you go through war. I think that's inevitable, right? And and you know, in, in theological terms, we would call it the Call this theodicy, which is you know why do bad things happen or why is there evil in the world? There's a whole host of theodicies of different answers to that question. I've read plenty of them. None of them are satisfying. I don't mind Tolkien's ultimately satisfying either. Actually, I don't think you know anybody I mean? like, answers it. Yeah, because because I'm not sure there is in fact an answer to to evil in the world or or if we don't want to use the word evil to brokenness or to suffering. Whatever, right? Uh, except I think we all say we all agree. I'd like to think that that we don't think it's a good thing when people suffer for any reason, right? Why? That's too much. Come on, let's do it. Okay. I don't know. I think we know it when we hear it. Uh, okay, uh, I'm going to do uh, Ryan. Um, first of all, that was awesome. Um, <laughs> um, Chris, I'm going to go on the assumption that you've read R.A. Salvatore's Drizzt Duarden's Chronicles. And I hate them for the very fire that way. Okay, well, well, we we'll, we'll talk about this afterwards. Yeah. But, um, so there's one point in that where 
um, Ari Salvatore is talking about the variety of morality within his world, and he talks about the different races kind of showing that the good, evil, and gray area, like the elves, with exception, are good, and the dwarves, with exception, are good. Um, but the orcs and the goblins, with exception, are evil. Um, but then there's humanity, and humanity is can go either way to extremes. Um, we have Mother Teresa and we have Hitler. Um, and I think Tolkien very much goes on that same thing. Like, we have evil elves, um, and we have elves of fall. We have Feanor, we have, what's his face, that refused to drop the ring into the volcano? Uh, no, the elf. Uh, no, 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 thank you. Wait, no, he wasn't human. Okay, forgive me. This is, this is embarrassing. Um, <laughs> we have the temptation of Galadriel, but we also have orcs, and I'm like, I don't know of an exception of a good orc. Yeah, that's... Do we want to start screaming at each other for the next part? And we have humans, and humans is where the gray area comes in. They, they 99% of the time, don't know that for sure that they're doing the right thing, even in Tolkien. So I think he, he gets the best of both worlds with black and white and gray by means of the races. All right, Sarah, and then Robert? I think, too, that you could argue that um, Melkor's original intent and original ideas, I mean, Sophia mentioned it too, but wasn't actually evil. Like, you know where this is going. I'll agree with you that you look at it and you're like, ah, yes, he's going to be the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, you know where this is going. But originally, um, it's not like he's doing a bad thing, and we were talking about how sorrow also is interwoven into it. Um, the strongest example being that, like, he creates essentially winter, um, you know, because Iluvatar afterwards leans over to, to um, Omo and is like, look, now you have, like, ice and snow, isn't this great? I don't know that winter is definitely and like all of this, all of this stems from what Melkor originally did. And so you can read it and you can say, oh, we know that Melkor is eventually going to be a bad guy because he's only doing this for his own glorification, not really to make things better. Um, but at the, even at the time of his interference in the scene, uh, ultimately everything that he does um, results in something new, but still creative. And, um, and and it still comes out amazing, but then like the further you go on into it, the more problems that he has because instead of now creating in order to do something that is great in and of himself, he's really just angry that other people are making nice things. So he's not even anymore sitting there being like, okay, well you can make your thing and I'll make my thing and my thing will be nice too. Like he's actively trying to destroy everyone else's work consistently. And then he starts killing people, and everything goes. <laughs> uh, Robert, I think Robert, we may have to wrap up because it's already ten minutes. Well, no, we go to two, I guess. But yeah, Robert and Joseph. And um, I think I, I agree with Chris's like base point here, and that all the gray examples we've been giving are still binary examples. It's still a character doing good or evil or good and evil, but that's not truly gray morality where you make a choice and it's not a good or bad choice. It's just a choice that leads to outcomes that may be both good and bad. 
um, which is a problem that you see in Tolkien a lot. Every choice is good or bad. Even if a character does both, it's still binary. There's no there's no gray area there. Like, what was the good choice? What was the bad choice? It's always you always know when you when you read it what's good and what's bad. Yeah, yeah, Joseph. I think what's really interesting is like another thing to think about this, and kind of I've been picturing it as we've been going along. Is imagine the that the sort of like conflict between Melkor and Iluvatar isn't like good and evil, but like a sculptor giving like a class in sculpture to a bunch of students, and they're having artistic differences, and it's the idea of like you're saying that Melkor's like, no, my thing will be nice. No, it's the student kind of making like a pot. And then Illuminatar is like, well, that's not exactly the sort of artistic thing I taught you. Like, when you learn more, you might be able to do it. He's like, no, I like my pot. And then going and pushing over the other students. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it's interesting that with the work, something more like that, and it's kind of the sort of openness of interpretation that Tolkien gives us here. If it's less like, oh, good and evil, and more like, Artistic differences, which you learned all that you know about art from the guy who just taught you it and made you, right? Like, it, it's interesting to consider it less, like, even like a binary choice and more like, where are you, where are they picking up their ability to choose from, right? Sarah? Um, I was interested in what you were saying about, like, a gray, um, a gray morality in Tolkien, because I think that a lot of, uh, what you're saying is that it's not necessarily where there's, um, a gray area, like the gray area of do you lie to someone if they ask you if they look good in that shirt? Like, you know, <laughs> like lying is wrong, but also so is hurting people's feelings, right? Um, you're thinking of a gray area where like, there's literally a choice here where it could go either way, and you're not sure what's going to result from it. Um, and that's a different kind of gray area, and I think when you've got a gray area like that in Tolkien, you're looking at it and you're like, Ah uh, yes, you should make this decision not because it's the um, ultimate moral decision, but because you have also you have outside knowledge about um, what could result from it, right? So if you're reading um, if you're reading Tolkien uh, and you're looking at say Aragorn, right? And Aragorn at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring is like, man, do I go after Pippin and Merry or do I go after Frodo and Sam? Uh, ultimately, he goes after Pippin and Mary, and it turns out to be a good thing because they need him, and Frodo and Sam find Gollum, and everything works out in the end. Um, but that's because we have knowledge, and so we can look at it and say, ah, Aragorn made the right choice. Um, but a truly great area like that is what, what you're talking about is more a question, if I'm right in interpreting it, is really more a question of like anything could result from this question, but it's not a moral dilemma a moral gray area, because to have a moral gray area, um, you also have to have extremes of right and wrong. If you don't have any conception of what is truly right and truly wrong, you also can't have a middle of this could be either. Um, you just have an absence of morality entirely. Chris? Um, so, to kind of go off what you put online, what you said, um, you talked about examples of gray characters as being Boromir, Denethor, and Theonor. Uh, All of those, yes, are good intentioned people for the most part. They know we have some discussion on that later. <laughs> uh, but even though they're gray, and you can say they all have good intentions, they all kind of get the fate um, that one might say deserve for their ill actions. 
is uh, filled with more than a couple dozen arrows, probably dies. He dies being said, you know, we know you're a good guy and all that, but man, maybe if you weren't such a dick, you wouldn't have died. Is kind of the message there. Denethor um, leaps off of a thing and dies because he goes crazy because he's doing the wrong thing, and Fanor gets burnt. Chris, hey, so, well, yes, these characters are gray. They get punished for their bad actions, and but they get remembered because you know there was good actions. But so that's not really what gray morality is. Gray morality is you remove the like good and evil are a debate, not an absolute. It's it's about relativity. It's like sure, killing people is wrong. But is it wrong to kill somebody if, say, Hitler? Like, if you have the ability to go back and kill baby Hitler, would you do it? That is, like, if you kill, you do it, you go back and kill baby Hitler, you just killed an infant. That's pretty evil, but also you stop Hitler from being awful. So, gray morality is talks of relativity, and it's talks of measures, and it's talks of, you can't think of everything in absolute, because that's not how the real world works. So I, I wish there was more of that, and but you were probably you'll never you're not going to find that in Tolkien. It's not what he's about. Yeah. I don't think what you have with those three characters is examples of people being punished for their misdeeds, right? Like Denethor, I mean, he commits suicide. That's it's not like an external punishment that's imposed on him because of his misdeeds. They just happen to lead him to, to do something that's utterly self-destructive. Um, same thing with Fanor, right? He charges in foolishly and ends up like dying, but that's not really like a punishment. It's just an imprudent choice on I don't know how to carry it. Well, attack, take right? a, a, an example of Aragorn. He rushes in headstrong into battle all the orcs of Mordor, and he comes out and he becomes king. <laughs> so, like you mean you mean at the Black Gate? At, 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 at the Black Gate, like the odds were just as unlikely, but because he was a good guy and because he was an unquestionable good guy, he had to win. But Fanor charges in, and he knows when he charges in, hundred percent he can't win. You're supposed to believe that there's the same odds as the black people. But I think Chris is right that Tolkien is working within that system, yeah. right? And he and and theologically, I think he's probably working within that system too, right? That Tolkien would say there is, in fact, absolute good, absolute. Well, oh, no, I don't think he would say that there are there are particular actions. Like, not that everything is absolutely right or wrong, but that you do have absolutes. Like, murder of the innocent or something like that. That's that's an app, that would be an, an example of an absolute. I would probably say, I don't think he's not going to have any absolutes at all. It's, I mean, I, I mean, frankly, the Catholic tradition, you, know, yeah. you don't have that, but you do have absolutes. Right. Yeah. I just, um, based on, like, the moral gray area, I was thinking of uh, the part of the Hollywood where Bilbo uh, steals the ring from Gollum. Right. And that's a matter of he's stealing that it's morally wrong. But what, like, would it have been right to leave it with Gollum, where it's obviously self-destructive and like Gollum, obviously not a positive character at that time. To like, just what Bilbo, Bilbo sees is not a positive character. He sees those guys going insane, he's going to kill me. And eat me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Where, but then, uh, like, but then, of course, it's still wrong. Bill will steal it, and 
not only that, it's not even just morally gray, it's the gray area of what would have happened if he had given back to all of them. Like, would the, what would have happened to the North Arabian series? That was the next week, by the way. That's right. Yeah, and I just, I thought that would be, that was sort of like a gray area in both seeing as he that way. Okay, Alex? Um, I wish Joseph was still here because I really liked his point about the in-groups. Because I think once you read once you read that part where it says um, that uh, there are parts of the boy that Luke Tarot doesn't know about, I think that really takes him like he can't he can't be the like Christian God at that point. Like Christian God is omniscient, and so well, I mean it depends on I guess your extent, but in, in general, most Christian gods are omniscient, right? Yeah. That's not crazy. Like, okay, thank you. Um, so it takes him like out of that realm. Like there are literally things that he doesn't know about. So I think I think the what what Joseph said about in group is really relevant because I feel like in a case where Lutar has areas that he literally doesn't see, it would be possible for Melkor to be like, yeah, I'm done being a subordinate of a god. I'm gonna go into the void and be my own god somewhere else where it doesn't interfere with these people. And then the fact that he stays into that in-group and is like, no, actually, I do just want to fuck around with these guys and like destroy everything that they're trying to do. I, I, I feel better about that as like an absolute morality if there was in fact an option for him to just like leave and go away from where Lutar can't see you, perhaps become his own person. Um, that, that makes me feel better about the absolute morality of what is if you think about it of like uh, an in-group that is part of the world that we know. And then there is a possibility of being out of the realm of Lutar. But Melkor decided he didn't want to do that, and he just wanted to mess around with all the other and destroy the world a million times. Yeah, Where does it actually say that there are parts of Void that Lutar doesn't know? Because, like, I know, Robert, you mentioned that it was into that, but all it says is that Melkor was frustrated that there were parts of the Void that Lutar hadn't given thought to yet, which is Melkor is not privy to all of Lutar's thoughts. But the fact that, like, given thought to there is not that. Question of whether or not he knows them. It's a question of his plans for them, right? I don't think it actually says anywhere that there is anything Luthor doesn't know. Well, that is not also that doesn't mean that he is omniscient, but well, it, in that case, I guess he is the Christian God. No, it, it's, it's kind of left. It's kind of left open. It's not. It's not directly yeah. stated that he's omniscient, but yeah. it's not stated that there is anything that he doesn't know. Yeah, I mean, what well, he says uh, is the location of his emptiness. Yeah, here's crazy. Um, I just think, I guess, this isn't so much what I'm saying, but I know Tolkien, I remember he, um, uh, Manway and Manway's have a conversation about this later, um, and Manway says, Thus even as Eru spoke to us, shall beauty not look forward to see if you brought to Aeth, evil yet be good to have been. But Manway's response is, and yet remain evil. Mm-hmm. So I think Tolkien is pretty intentionally trying to believe it. I don't think he knows uh, the answers to this question. It's kind of a pretty vague statement there. Uh, Robert? Um, I was just going to say that I think part of why I said that is because I'm thinking of the the Book of Lost Tales where it's very, very clear that Lubitar just doesn't know a lot of stuff because he's never turned his light to those areas. Um, So that makes me wonder if Tolkien intentionally made a Lubitar omniscient here by taking out those phrases. Because he purposely reworded all of this, so maybe that was his ultimate intention. Now, as he's becoming, you know, stronger in his faith, that you know what, I want this guy to be God, not just some other kind of lower order being. Yeah, Chris. To not work against myself, uh, I guess, but uh, to what? Sorry, I'm going to work against myself in this uh, more more obvious sense. But if there is that uh, parts of the uh, the void that are unknown to 
strong benevolence all good. And that those parts of the void that he doesn't know about are the evils of the universe, and that's what Melkor goes and finds in the dark shadows. Is this the Lion King? <laughs> 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we talked a lot about Melkor having come entirely from Lubitar, but um, I guess the way we thought about this, it can't be you know, it can't be everything that um, Melkor has is necessarily from Lubitar because you know, Lubitar is capable of singing this song on its own and um, essentially kind of having the world exist as it does. You wouldn't need that. He's with he's given them maybe it's his like secret fire that kind of gives them something psychic inside of himself because I get the impression that's although Lubitar keeps it it's outside of it because they can talk about it more as like a possession that is not part of him so I think that there is kind of this this bit of maybe free will he, he stills in his characters because they're not they're not like only from him but also he keeps it but it's not accessible to anyone else. Yeah, right, like hypothetically, if that's what's separating you, making you more powerful than the, than the other Einar, like if the Einar could get it, they would, be, they would take his place, right? Like if Melkor could actually attain the imperishable plane, he'd be an equal. Um, but he can't, like he can't find it anywhere. Um, so either Luvatar is really, really good at hiding an imperishable plane, or like it's something that's, uh, that's a part of him, or at least the only thing he use. That's fair. Yeah, I, I say that even if, if I, I guess I'd say probably he's really good at hiding. <laughs> but I mean, I said I don't even know what Lumitar would necessarily understand it. He gives it to humans and elves, and that's you know, and he valid himself. I think that Mummy actually says that after his friend, whatever. But but that just seems to give all the complications and everything. So Lumitar seems to be more or less omniscient. He shows these bits of the world and stuff. But it's kind of as soon as this secret fire is involved, that's where that's where he seems to be more unpredictable. Much of the book at all. I always thought of it as just being light. Yeah, I, yeah, I was saying, like, our, our, I don't think, I, like you were saying, I don't think we're supposed to take this literally, but I don't think, especially with the flame imperishable, that this is a literal flame that is encapsulated in a jar or some such thing. Like, I don't think that this is an actual item that Ilubitar hides. Whether or not it's what you want to think about as, you know, free will or thought or you know the the capacity of life or whatever you want to talk about it as a metaphor but this is something that it, whether it's an ability or an inherent part of his nature that Illuminatar has and maybe in this case like Melkor is actually thinking about it as a literal object like if I had this imperishable flame I could be like this not realizing that what he's looking for is not a thing it is not an item that he can lock away in a chest for his own, but it's an inherent part of the Lubitar's nature that he gets unto beings that he creates. Yeah. And it's just that language that he uses for the Ainur, and then that gets transmitted to the elves as something to make it more palatable for a less infinite mind to understand. Well, at the very least, it's, it's a gift. Right, which by definition can't be taken. Right? Yeah, Robert? Um, yeah, this is a tricky question to answer because the language isn't even really that clear. Uh, like at one point, Mubutar is talking, he says, I will send forth into the void the flame imperishable, and it shall be at the heart of the world, and the world shall be. 
And then later on it says that they see a far-off light um, as if there were a heart of living flame or whatever. Um, even that language isn't really clear. Like, did Iluvatar give up his power to make the world? Like, is that where his power <laughs> resides now instead of, like, with him and his throne? It's never really explicitly stated either way, whether that's just a metaphor, like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to imbue life on this planet that I'm terraforming. Follow my earlier alien analogy. <laughs> Of course, Gandalf, right on the bridge, right? Like, so, yeah. and the ring of fire. Gandalf. That still could be taken from the core of her. It could be, right. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting how Gandalf uh, becomes that, that figure, right? Like, even in the hot, right? Where he's lighting pine cones on fire, like, he becomes that, the, the, you know, the, the, the minister of that, of that flame in some sense. Right? Well, it's because there was that um, presentation that. We went to like four years ago, um, where someone at the Grand Mac was talking about the three um, like Jesus symbols in Lord of uh, right. and one of them was Gandalf, one of them was Aragorn, one of them was Frodo. Priest, and prophet, then, king. Yeah. For me? Priest, prophet, and king. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, or I think yeah, I think he, uh, Aragorn wasn't even king really; he was just more. Right. But anyway, it's a good talk. But I think that's what what you're talking about. Yeah. Gandalf really represents that like messenger yeah. of the gods. Yeah, Chris, with the sacred flame being thrown to the earth to take from the rings later on, maybe yeah. the world is Lutar's ring, and that's why we don't see him anymore. He's poured so much of himself into the damn thing that <laughs> now he's just some hobo next to the Shire that doesn't want the ring, and he's passage about where he um, he's talking about Arda and he says and I shall put the imperishable flame into it like, and it shall be. Like, I think it kind of means that there's a strong argument to be made for that it's simply being um, I don't know which is kind of how I usually think of it that it's either being or the ability to create but then I think if it's being is really interesting if Mukra's going into the void looking for it it's like it's, he just can't stand the fact that his being doesn't come from himself like he's not uncreated um, but I don't know. That's about all I can get for the imperial fire. Well, uh, <clears throat> there was talk about making the Iron Lake Lake and development in one week, and I was like, eh, I don't think you want to do that. You knew this was going to happen. <laughs> so, obviously, we haven't exhausted it. There's a whole bunch that we, we didn't talk about, which would have been really fun. Uh, but we're going to move on next week to the Valaguenta, and I suspect there's going to be a lot there as well.